You know, when I was first asked to do this meeting, there was a lot of controversy involved. And I'm not going to talk about the controversy, but I want to tell you that I live with a disease. And I live with the disease between my ears that tells me that I'm not good enough, that I don't have enough clean time, that I don't have enough experience. But when I do what my predecessors taught me, and I took a step back, and I aligned my will with God's, and I prayed for the knowledge of His, for the knowledge of His will for me and the power to carry that out. And by listening for the answer, He revealed to me that I am exactly where I'm supposed to be in Honolulu, Hawaii, chairing a meeting at the World Convention. The topic today is seeking recovery or risking relapse. And when I was first told my topic, the first thing that came to my mind was doing God's will or not doing God's will. And in my program, my first sponsor taught me that the difference between doing God's will and not doing God's will was simply the difference between right from wrong. And she broke it down to me and she simplified it for me. She said, you know, Nikki, when you walk into a room and you get that kick in your gut, then you know that's not God's will when you're getting ready to do something that's not right. But I believe in the spiritual principle of identification, and I believe that it is crucial to the newcomer in this room, and our literature talks about the newcomer is the most important person at any meeting, and my whole story is seeking recovery or risking relapse. I was introduced to the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous through H&I when I was 14 years old in my very first treatment center. Thank you, anyone who was on an H&I committee, because I believe that that's where the seed was planted for me. And there was a piece of me back then that had a desire. But the steel plate syndrome that I always talk about stopped me. My defect of stubbornness, I did it my way. I remember being in that first meeting, and I don't know if anybody's ever been in treatment, you know, but you, you get, like, little privileges and you get on the bus. You get to go out to a meeting. And um, I went to my first meeting outside the institution. And I was sitting in the meeting, and the woman was doing an anniversary, and she had some years clean. And I remember her saying in this meeting that I've been in 10 treatment programs, and I finally got this thing. And my disease piped right up and sat on my shoulder and told me, you got nine to go. 
And ironically, my story, I've been to nine treatment centers. <laughs> but that's not what got me clean. It wasn't until I was ready. It wasn't until I was beaten. Was I able to recover? I want to take it back, you know, because um, I just believe that it's vital to the newcomer to tell where I came from. And um, my disease started very early. And um, I, my, my mother suffers from the disease of addiction. And I am my mother's daughter. And as an eight-year-old child, I remember my mother running around the house with a butcher knife. And she would run around the house, and she would cut herself. And she would tell me that it was my fault that Mommy had to cut herself. And she would bleed all over the place, and she would tell my sister and I both that it was our fault. And I remember watching my mom drink from this bottle. And she never remembered what she did the next day. And I picked up as an eight-year-old child that if I drank from the same bottle Mommy drank from, that I wouldn't remember what she did either. So the first drug I picked up, which was alcohol, alcohol is a drug, (laughs) was to forget. It wasn't to fit in. It wasn't peer pressure. It wasn't to hang out. It was to forget. And when my mother found out that my sister and I were drinking her vodka instead of pouring it down the drain, she condoned the behavior instead of condemning it. And stuff got really crazy real fast. As a family, the disease of addiction progressed. And things we were introduced to the marijuana, to the LSD, and to the PCP, and you all know the story, you know. But I remember, and I'll never forget this day, I remember hitchhiking back from a rock and roll concert on 95 South. (laughs) And I allowed a man 15 years older than me to inject me with cocaine for the very first time. And I was 12 years old. I still struggle today with some of the things that this disease robbed me of. And one of them is my childhood. And you know, when I was 12, 13 years old, I was a beautiful little girl. So stuff came pretty easy. But there was a time When I had to learn my own hustle. And I found myself at age 14. Hitchhiking down that lonely road. And I remember being that 14 year old little girl. And I remember praying, praying 
at 3 o'clock in the morning on Pulaski Highway. Please let someone pick me up. I remember walking down the street singing to myself because I was so lonely and so afraid as I walked down that lonely road, searching for the next one. And from that point on, my story is immense consequences. From the age of 14 up until my clean date, I have visited many institutions. I have been to jail many times. And I've been to prison many times. And I've been to psychiatric wards many times. And I have overdosed many times. And it wasn't until I was beaten there have been many opportunities in my life through all those places and all those people and my family and my predecessors in this program. I was introduced to these rooms when I was 14 and there was people in these rooms that loved me and there was people that gave me opportunities. There were recovery houses that I lived in. There were it was just over and over and over again. And you know, my friend Jimmy did a meeting yesterday on, about people who believed in him. The topic was somebody who believes in me. And the whole time I was listening to him chair the meeting, I was thinking about those people. And I truly believe there's a person in this room today who is my sponsor, that if it wasn't for her ability to work the 12-step in her life, I wouldn't be here today. And I thank God for the steps in Narcotics Anonymous. Because if it wasn't for my willingness to work the steps in Narcotics Anonymous, I wouldn't be here today either. So the first time that I got serious, I did a two and a half year sentence in the state of Florida. And I did like 20 months on 30 and I got out. And that was my first trip to a penitentiary. I was 22 years old. I turned 22 and for 23 years old, it's irrelevant, I guess. Um, and I got out of prison and I said, I don't want to live like this anymore. And I got clean. I stayed clean 16 months and I got a sponsor and I worked a couple steps. You know, I got a home group, you know, and I got into a relationship and I used. And then I returned to the state of Maryland where I'm from and, and, and like, um, Tried it again, and I got 17 months, and I got a little money in the bank, and I got a little job, and I got a couple steps done, you know, and I got a home group and a sponsor, and I got a relationship, and I used. (laughs) And you know what? Back then, you couldn't tell me it wasn't their fault. But today, I know that it wasn't their fault. It was the fact that I didn't have the ammunition to get through the storm when the storm came. You see, I had did the one, two, three shuffle. And I didn't have the ammunition to get through the storm. 
And the ammunition that I'm talking about is the 12 steps of Narcotics Anonymous. And I will say this over and over again. I believe the only reason that I'm standing here is that God gave me the willingness to work the steps of this program. And I've been granted the freedom through the steps. So on March 26th of the year 2000, I woke up one more time, one more overdose, in one more hospital, a hundred pounds soaking wet, no visible veins on my body. And one thing that I really need to remember, I was dirty, I was filthy, and I was stinking. Because I truly believe that in my previous attempts to get clean that I forgot where I came from. And I absolutely refuse to forget where I came from today. I believe that if I forget, I am destined to return. And I woke up and the doctors weren't real nice to me. I had history around that hospital. (laughs) And they said to me, Miss, either go kill yourself or we have a bed and detox for you one more time. And I truly believe, reflecting back on my recovery, laying on the floor of that detox, and I laid on the floor because the sheets were sticking to me and I was so ill, I needed that, like, concrete coldness against my body. I didn't care what they was pumping in me. I was ill. And I remember laying on the floor of that detox and looking up in the bright lights, And I had the first selfless thought I ever had. And at the time, I didn't know it, that it was selfless. I didn't have a clue what a spiritual principle was. And I looked up in those lights and I said, God, either take my life or let me get this thing this time. Because I don't want to hurt anybody anymore. I don't want to cause anyone any more pain. Man, I had ran freight trains through people's lives. And I didn't want to live anymore if that's all life was about. So I picked up the phone. And I called this woman. Who was here today. And I said, Rhonda, (laughs) you think I can move in your recovery house again? (laughs) And she said, I really need to call you back. (laughs) I had done so many things to her. You know, I had shot dope in her houses. I had beat people up in her houses. I had, like, raised my fist at her in her houses. And an hour before I was discharged from the detox, she called me and she told me, I'm going to give you one more chance. And I truly believe in my heart that God, working through Rhonda and the 12th step of this program, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here today. 
So thank you, Rhonda. And that's why in my life today, I have new, newcomers, they run railroad tracks through my life all day long. And they're building a freight train as we speak. <laughs> and I get mad and I cuss at them and I scream at them and I swear I'm never going to do it again. But you can ask my husband when they knock on the door or when they ring the phone, I'm there for them. Because who am I to judge after all I've been through when they're going to get this thing? When that vital time is that they're going to get this thing. And Rhonda taught me that. Let's see where we at here. Okay, I got some time. Um, so, and then I jumped into my recovery. I, was, I had tunnel vision. I had tunnel vision, and I inverted all my stubbornness into a positive asset. And my tunnel vision enabled me to get some of the ammunition to get through the storms. I was so scared of repeating the same mistakes. And I learned, one of the first spiritual principles that I learned was commitment. Because my first sponsor, she put me on a little assignment before I went into my first step. And she had me read out of our basic text, Recovery and Relapse, for 30 days. And she asked me to write down three things that I was going to, or there could be more, but the, the minimum was three things, that I wasn't going to do, that I had done previously, and make this commitment to myself because of my previous attempts to get clean, not to do them this time, or to do them, things that I hadn't done, you know. So those three things were, number one, first and foremost, was to work the steps of Narcotics Anonymous. Because I had never tried that. (laughs) And the second thing was to stay out of a relationship. And you know what? There's nowhere in the book that talks about staying out of a relationship for a year. You know, it's just like a suggestion that's been around here forever. But I never suggest that to my sponsees. I tell them, when you're done the 12 steps, then you can get in a relationship. So as fast as you want to do them, then you can get in a relationship. But, I mean, they do what they want to do anyway. But, um, but that was for me. That was a commitment to myself because that was one of my triggers. That was one of the things that, that I believe sent me out there. So one of the things, I mean, I had to learn how to, who Nikki was. And um, I put that on the list. And the other thing was developing the ability to listen. <laughs> Because being in nine treatment centers and three psych wards and being in Narcotics Anonymous for 15 years, I knew everything. And I had that I knowism going on. And I always had to raise my hand in a meeting and tell you about it. Now, if I knew so much, why was I still using? So I made a commitment to myself that I was going to sit down, shut up, sit in the front row for one year. And in that year, until I celebrated my first year clean, now this is just for me, I shared in one meeting, and that was when my baby nephew died as a direct result of this disease, because I was in pain, and I needed to share. But in that year, I listened. And for the first time in 15 years, I heard something. 
Because you know what? I had dug a hole so deep. I came here with the clothes on my back. I came here, like I said, 100 pounds soaking wet. I came here, I had burned every bridge that had ever been built for me. But when I cried out and I asked God to take my life or let me get this thing this time, he ignited a spark of hope in my heart. And with that hope, coupled with coming to meetings, I heard the hope in the room. You know, I I used to sit down and write out like a goal list. And my first goal was getting up, getting on the bus and going to get a birth certificate. And my second goal was going to get a social security card. And my third goal was going down and getting with the two items to get the license. (laughs) So I had an idea in order to get a job. You know, by this time, I'm like on my first step, and we admitted we were powerless over our addiction, our lives had become a man's Well, I learned about surrender, honesty, acceptance. And I also learned the spiritual principle of responsibility. And if I was on the literature committee, I would change <laughs> that one phrase in the basic text that says we must become responsible for oneself to get a job. <laughs> Because it's plainer, it's more simple, you know, but that's what I tell my sponsors. That means get a job. I just break it down to them. So with 45 days clean, I got on that bus and I went downtown and I got a job. And I learned about the spiritual principles of perseverance, determination, setting goals and attaining goals. Early on in my recovery, I craved to have my father's trust. And I don't know if it's my Italian heritage, but that man never turned his back on me. There was a time when he stopped enabling me, but he never turned his back on me. And I wanted to pay him back. I wanted to earn his trust. I wanted to make amends to him. And today that man is my best friend. And that's like, such a beautiful thing because when I first got clean or when I was in active addiction, that man wouldn't even let me in his front door. So in the second step came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I learned faith. I learned hope. My sponsor said to me, she said, Nikki, Just look behind you and tell me there's not a God. Just look behind you at all your near-death experiences. I've had my left side reconstructed. I've been shot in my head. You know, I've I've been thrown out of cars, jumped out of cars, you know. Fifteen years of hustling and active addiction, in and out, you know. Fourteen overdoses. I truly believe that my primary purpose is to carry the message to the act that still suffers. And in third step, I learned about trust. And I learned about letting go. And I learned about, I have some serious control issues. (laughs) And they're like worse today than ever. Mm. 
My husband can tell you that. I have been blessed with a man with patience and tolerance. In the fourth step, this was my hurdle. This was where I truly believe. When I made a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself, I knew that there was a time in my life when I knew right from wrong and I decided to do wrong regardless of the consequences. And when I was allowed to take the blame off my mother because I blamed that woman for who I was my whole life, and all the psychoanalysts, psychiatrists, and, you know, all those people, the psychosocial assessments and all the stuff that I went through in my life, they told me that it was okay to blame her, that it was her fault, that a little girl that young shouldn't have been using drugs and allowed to do anything she wanted to do. So it was, like, okay to blame. And it wasn't until I made that searching and fearless moral inventory and found out that it was a time in my life when I knew right from wrong. Was I able to recover? You know, and I learned to take my part, own my responsibility for my actions in the fourth step. And in the fifth step, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, God already knows. (laughs) I learned the exact nature of my wrong. And I remember grabbing onto my sponsor's hands and saying to her, As I was reading my fourth step, how is anybody ever going to love me? I had done so many horrible things. And she said to me, Nikki, just keep moving on. You will learn to love yourself and you will be capable of loving others. And in the sixth step, wow, right? We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Well, the word entirely and the word all threw me off a little bit. Because <laughs> the sixth step talks about like those defects that we really like about ourselves. And one of the ones I really like about myself is intimidating people. <laughs> but I learned that I could invert these defects, not all of them. But the list was like so long, you know. There were some of those defects that I could invert into character assets and use them to my advantage in this recovery. And like a perfect example of that is stubbornness. In the beginning of this meeting, I said that I inverted my stubbornness into an asset. And I had tunnel vision and I wasn't going to let anybody stand in my way of getting it this time. And in the sixth step, I learned... That until my foot is in the grave, I will always have the thought. It's what I do with it that counts. And in the seventh step, I will show the solution. We humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And my impulsiveness slipped away. I developed the ability to think before I acted. Wow. I truly, truly believe that I had to punch you in the face if you looked at me wrong. I honestly believe that because my whole life was institutions in the street. And my ego was so big 
I'm just a little old cream puff inside, right, Sherry? (laughs) The harder we are on the outside, the softer we are on the inside. And in the eight stuff, the most profound thing I learned, or the most profound statement that I read in the book, was that I must be spiritually fit enough to make my amends in the ninth step without thinking about the harm you caused me. And the fear of making that amends to my mother overwhelmed me. But I didn't let it stop me. I was so scared that when I faced her, because at that time I had forgiven her, I learned the spiritual principle of forgiveness in the fourth step. And I believed I am my mother's daughter. And if I can't forgive her, how can I expect forgiveness? So in the ninth step, you know, I made my little amends around town and everything. I took a 1,500-mile trip, and this is just for me. And I faced that woman because I know I had caused her pain. And I was faced with the pain that I caused her. And I seen, how do you watch your 12-year-old daughter stick a needle in her arm? I know I had hurt my mother. And I made amends for my behavior, and I was free. Because, unfortunately, my mother is still in active addiction. But I know today when she calls me from 1,500 miles away and she's loaded, I don't have to listen. But also, when the hurricane hits her house... And I send her $500 in the mail. I can make my amends to her to help her. And it's just a freedom that I can't even explain. I don't live in the guilt and shame anymore. And the 10th step is a daily inventory. Oh, and by the way, if you didn't want to hear about the steps, I guess we're in the wrong meeting. (laughs) 10th step is a daily inventory. For the present. And the 11th step, I learned how to align my will with God's. I learned how to listen for the answer. And I learned that it's simply the difference between right from wrong. And in the 12th step, which is very prevalent in my life today, there was a time in my life that my sponsor told me to pick newcomers up for meetings. And my sponsor told me that I had to share this meeting or that meeting or do this service commitment. But today... I have true compassion for the newcomer. I have the spiritual principle of selflessness. I have unconditional love. And I truly remember where I came from. It is my belief that in the first step it talks about the physical, the mental, and the spiritual aspect of this disease. The physical is that driving obsession. I mean, the mental is that driving obsession that no matter what, even if dad's in the hospital, I've got to get one more. And the physical is apparent when we get here. And the spiritual is the total and complete self-centeredness of who we are when we get here. And in the 12th step, the primary spiritual principles are selflessness, unconditional love. And I believe that God brought me here, the person drugs made me. And that through the journey of the 12 Steps of Narcotics Anonymous, I'm in the process of becoming the woman that God intended me, intended me to be. And I'm an addict. My name's Nikki. I'll keep coming back.
Okay. Now I would like to introduce our second speaker, Stephen D. from Texas. Yeah, wow. <laughs> That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> I'm Stephen. I'm a very grateful addict. Hi, family. <clears throat> and I mean that in the truest sense of the word. I, <clears throat> it's such an honor to be here. It's my first world convention, and I'm up here on the stage. And that's because someone who's known me for 19 years stood up for me in a, in a committee meeting and said, you know, this guy needs to share his experience. You know? And that means a lot to me. Because that person and I have a history, <laughs> an old history. <clears throat> so we uh, did our thing a long time ago, and I disrespected her incredibly. And over time, and principles before personalities, she's the one that stood up for me and asked me to come do this thing. You know, that's how Narcotics Anonymous works. I want to tell you my clean day, which is December 28, 1982. And I want to tell you that that's the only clean day I've ever had. But I also want to tell you that my part of this thing about relapse is not using but the behavior. Because my belief is, is that using is the end result of relapsing behavior. Using is about forgetting spiritual principles. Using is about forgetting where I come from. Using is about, or relapsing is about not remembering the love that was given to me so freely when I walked in the doors and I could not love myself. I could not look in the mirror. I could not stand to be in my skin. And all I wanted to do was die. And there were at least 50 dope things in the room that I walked into on December the 27th, 1982, that told me a different story. My disease, I can sum up like this. I had a relationship with a syringe, and for a long time, it gave me exactly what I wanted when I wanted it. And there came a time when, no matter what I put in it, it didn't work anymore. Okay? And the end of the road for me was that, God, if you're up there, please let me die. This is the only way out for me. Because in 1982, there weren't treatment center commercials. There weren't treatment center billboards. There weren't, in my town, Narcotics Anonymous meetings on 
every corner and every block. In fact, I knew nothing of addiction, and I knew nothing about the disease, and I didn't know that there was an option for me other than one final shot, and it was over. And I can tell you, I tried that a few times, and I came to in a lot of ERs, and I cussed God because I didn't want to live. I wanted to die. I wanted to die. I want to tell you a little joke. It's my favorite joke about recovery. Duck walks into a bar, jumps up on the bar stool, bangs his beak down on the bar. Bartender walks over and says, what are you doing in here? Duck says, got any grapes? Duck bartender says, no, I don't have any grapes. Now get out of here. The next day, Duck walks into the bar, jumps up on the bar stool, bangs his beak down on the bar. Bartender walks over and Duck says, got any grapes? Bartender says, no, I don't have any grapes. Now get out of here. Don't come back. The next day, Duck walks into the bar, jumps up on the bar stool. Bartender walks down there. Duck says, got any grapes? Bartender says, no, and if you come in here tomorrow, I'm going to nail your beak to the bar. Next day, Duck walks into the bar. <laughs> he stands below the bar stool and looks up. The bartender walks over, and Duck says, got any nails? The bartender said, no. He jumps up on the stool and says, got any grapes? <laughs> so what's the parallel? <laughs> Sometimes, even when you know you're going to get your ass nailed to the bar, you've got to walk through the door. And that's been my experience in Narcotics Anonymous. <clears throat> I've, been an, I've been an old-timer in Narcotics Anonymous ever since I got here. I walked in in my first meeting at six months clean and left because half the meeting was not, and I said, that's not the place for me. Ego. I came back about two years later with two and a half years clean. And my first meeting... A guy that I 12-stepped into the fellowship called me up and said, Hey, man, this is a, I'm going to this NA meeting. I want you to go with me. I said, Okay. He came over and picked me up. It was a business meeting. There were eight people in the room. I thought, Well, this is going to be small. And uh, <clears throat> the format was totally different than any recovery meeting I'd ever sat in before. And when I walked out of that thing, I was a GSR. <laughs> so I got some good news and some bad news. <laughs> I didn't know what a GSR was. <laughs> but obviously these people thought highly enough about me that I was going to be there. So, you know, that's a pretty cool deal. I must be doing something right. <clears throat> and we had a treasurer that had uh, commingling problems. That's the word that I learned in Narcotics Anonymous. So in just a little bit of time, uh, I became the GSR and the treasurer of that group. This was the first freestanding group of Narcotics Anonymous in the Dallas area. Up until that time, we'd been in churches, and we had a warehouse place called The Doors, where it was a nonprofit center, and a bunch of little different groups would meet there every night. But Narcotics Anonymous had never stood on its own in the Dallas area. And I got the gift of my first meeting in N.A. to become a co-founder of the first freestanding group in Narcotics Anonymous. That group was called the Yale Group. That group lost its focus eventually. That group lost knowledge of traditions, and no longer exists today. But my home group today was the second freestanding group in the Dallas area that was an offshoot of, of, of the Yale group called the Northside Group in the Dallas area. And that's my home group today. 
So I heard all this stuff about service work in Narcotics Anonymous because we were trying to get this thing off the ground in the Dallas area. And very quickly I got lassoed into into service work in Narcotics Anonymous. There was this thing. I must have had a sign on my head that said, just tell Stephen to come to a meeting and we can get him to take a position in service structure. You know, because, you know, my first four positions in service... Someone would come up and say, hey, we're having a meeting, come over here. And when I would come out, I would be, you know, the vice chair of the Long Star Region. I would be, you know, vice chair of H&I and then the chairperson of the Texas Unity Convention. You know, that's just kind of how it worked. You know, I just kept getting leaving the store and I'd come back out and I'd have another notch on my belt. And I thought that meant that I was doing things right. I thought that because I had so many service commitments and I was so involved in doing Narcotics Anonymous, that that meant that I was recovering in Narcotics Anonymous. And that's just not true for me. I don't know about you. Service is very important in Narcotics Anonymous, but there comes a time when, when service becomes the greater priority, recovery ceases to exist, and I'm no longer practicing spiritual principles, and it leads me down a path that's not very pleasant, and that was my experience. What it did for me... <clears throat> was um, you got me a wife. <laughs> I met my uh, wife, in our, my first wife in Narcotics Anonymous. Well, the only wife I've had in Narcotics Anonymous. We're not together today. But I met her uh, in service. And um, <clears throat> I sponsored a lot of people, and um, I was very involved, and I was very vocal, and I was very visible. And... All of that doing stuff um, was, became a process for me of, of um, living dirty and talking clean. And because uh, I looked good, you know, I had service commitments, I had sponsees, I'd worked through some steps, kind of. Um, <clears throat> and people knew me and people looked up to me and, and people uh, said they respected me, you know, because they kept coming and asking me to be their sponsor, man. And the end result for me was that at 10 years, I was in this marriage, and I had a kid, and we had the business, and the money, and the house, and I had no skills for a relationship. And, you know, there's a passage in um, our basic text, and I want to read it because I don't want to misquote it, and it comes from Recovering Relapse. And it says, one of our biggest stumbling blocks to recovery seems to be placing unrealistic expectations on ourselves or others. Relationships can be a terribly, terribly painful area. We tend to fantasize and project what will happen. We get angry and resentful if our fantasies are not fulfilled. And so I had this delusion because I was married and I had some time in Narcotics Anonymous and, and I had all these service commitments and I had all these sponsees that things were supposed to be a certain way. But the issue was is that, is that I hadn't truly done the work yet. <clears throat> and at 15 years clean, I was divorced because I sexually acted my way out of that relationship. Um, I no longer believed that Narcotics Anonymous had anything for me. I believed that I had learned all I could learn here. I had done all I could do here. 
I could sit in any meeting in the Dallas area and someone would open their mouth to share and I knew what they were going to say. You know, I knew the message that they were going to speak. And I, it just didn't serve any greater purpose for me anymore. And that was my denial. That was my delusion. That was my disease in full action. Because I came here skillless. I came here not knowing how to communicate. I came here without integrity. I came here without being able to stand in my truth. I didn't even know what my truth was. You know, I spent, I started getting loaded at age 12 and, and, and I cleaned up at age 26. So my formative years, I don't remember a lot about them. <laughs> they were deformative, not formative. And so I came here deformed. I came here broken. But I'm a parrot. As any good addict is, put them in an environment for 15 minutes and I could walk the walk and talk the talk and do the lingo and do what you did and say what you said and look like you looked. But that's not recovery. So at 15 years, I decided that it was time for me to go on this spiritual quest because I couldn't get what I needed spiritually in Narcotics Anonymous anymore. And so I left. The truth is, is that I had wounded so many people. I had led, she talked about, Nikki talked about being a freight train in people's lives before she got here. I was a freight train in people's lives after I got here. Okay? Some of it, I did not know what I was doing. Some of it, I did it. And I had too much shame to come back and say, I did this thing to me one more time. Because at 15 years, I'm supposed to look like, I'm supposed to be like, I'm supposed to sound like, and that's just not how it is. See, I guess I missed there is that this is a journey, not a destination. I heard it, but I didn't understand it. The thing that I got in the beginning from my first two sponsors was you don't use no matter what and work the steps or die. Those two things got ingrained in me. Don't use no matter what. So the only thing that I could hold on to when I took myself into my shadows in recovery was that I would walk out and say, yeah, I did that, but I didn't use. And our literature says that any day an addict doesn't use is a successful day. Okay, but that ain't all there is to it. But I held on to that, and I used that to justify my behavior. Yeah, I sexually acted out on my wife. Every day I went down on Samuel Boulevard and caught the $20 whore. Every day. But I didn't use. And then I would sit in the Sunday morning meeting at Northside and share on spiritual principles. Living dirty. Sounding clean. And the words in our literature, loneliness, isolation, degradation, fear, anger, resentment. I lived in that in clean time in Narcotics Anonymous. And it drove me out of here. And I stayed gone for five years. I did not pick up my 15-year medallion, 16, 17, 18, or 19. I didn't pick them up. Also didn't pick up on the street. I didn't use. But what I can tell you is, without reservation, 
that the same gift of desperation that brought me into the doors December 28, 1982, was the same gift that brought me back to Narcotics Anonymous on December 25, 2002. And I had gone full circle. Because when I walked in in 1982, I had three bags. And, and the jeans, the bandana, <laughs> the shirt, and the vest. I was a biker without a bike. <laughs> okay, okay. It was, it was another one of those roles that I lived. One of those fantasies, you know. I don't know how I ever pulled it off, because I, I ran with them, you know, but I never got on the scooter and rode with them. But, you know, somehow I got in there, you know, because I'm a good dope thing. I know how to do that, you know. I know how to get in there and be that, you know. And that followed me, that same delusional behavior and, uh, followed me into the fellowship. And because I had time and we were trying to get on the map and make it all happen, you know, maybe, maybe I got overlooked. I can tell you today, if I pulled some of the stuff that I did, with as strong as our fellowship is today, I don't believe I could have gotten away with that. I believe some people would have sat me down. And, and they sat me down back then. You know, they sat me down back then. I had four guys, Dean, Dennis, Matt, and Eddie. That's where my gratitude is. Because I didn't have a treatment center. I had an apartment floor. And those four guys, we'd go to that day center where I cleaned up. It was called Palmer Drug Abuse Program. And, and they'd bring me home at night. And they'd say, if you can get through the four of us, you can go use. For real. For 14 days. That was their message of hope to me. You kick all four of our asses, you can go use. I'm sitting there like this. <laughs> Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you. <clears throat> and let me tell you this, that, you know, we, we talk about uh, don't uh, shoot the messenger but hear the message. I found out nine years later that one of those guys was using the whole time, that he was telling me that if I could get through him, that I could go use. The whole time. All I know about that is, is that today, when I'm in a meeting in Narcotics Anonymous, I close my eyes and I listen. Because my God will speak to me through any available source, irregardless of age, race, color, creed, religion, or lack of religion. It don't matter. It don't matter. There was a guy that we buried this year who just couldn't get it. He was one of those. And um, when I had five years clean, <clears throat> I was sitting there. It was a Wednesday night meeting. I'll, I've never forgotten it. And, and, and I, I, you know, at, at that point, I was up in my throne looking down on, you know, on the little people. And, uh, and, and, you know, he'd already been in 11 treatment centers and I don't know how many times in prison. And, you know, and I, I just didn't want to have anything to do with that guy, you know, because he had nothing for me. You know, that was my attitude. And so at, at this 8 o'clock meeting, 
you know, there's 75 people in there, and the two chairs that were left, he and I had to sit down in. You know, God working. <laughs> so when it was, he had to share. I had to listen. I was sitting right there. There was nothing I could do to distract myself because, you know, he was bowed in my lap. <clears throat> and God uh, says, uh, I spent my entire life at that time trying to be clean. And I have not done what it takes to get clean. And that was the message that was loaded up for me so that when I walked back in the doors on December 25, 2002, dry, and all I wanted to do was die. I was living in a residential hotel. The woman that I had a child with had disappeared with the kid, the money, and everything that we owned. And I knew not where they were. It was Christmas Day. I had two other kids. I didn't know where they were. Well, they were over at my parents' house. And I was sitting in that hotel room alone. Isolation, degradation, loneliness, fear, resentment, anger, shame. From 8.30 to 11.45, that's how long it took me that morning to get in my car and go around the service road to my home group. Because the two choices that I had come down with, and our literature says when at the end of the road, was to drive my car into a pylon or go to the noon meeting at Northside. I know, I know, I know. There is not enough dope out there to kill the pain. Hell, there ain't enough dope out there to kill me. I tried for too long. That's what scares me when I hear these stories. So I know that that is not an option I'll take today. But driving into the pylon, that's one I can deal with. It's quick, hopefully, and it's over, hopefully. <laughs> of course, my attic luck, you know, I... <clears throat> I'd miss it just a little bit. <laughs> I walked into that meeting, and I knew, just like that duck, that I had some atonement that I needed to do. That was part of sitting in the garden and sweating blood before I walked back into that new meeting on Christmas Day. Because I knew that there were people that I needed to face. I knew that I had some wreckage to clear up. I also knew that a long time ago, a family gave me something that I could not give myself. And so I got in my car and I drove over there and I walked into the room. And there was one lady sitting in the room, in the meeting room, when I got there, that I remembered. I had watched her clean up. I had watched her come in. And I had watched her clean up. She got out of her chair. I sat down at the table and my head was hung and she got out of the chair and she came over. I stood up and she put her arms around me. She just held on to me. She said, I'm so glad you're here. She didn't say, I heard you relapsed. I heard you was in prison. We thought you was dead. No, she said, I am so glad you are here. And it was such a place of comfort, such a place of homecoming, just like I experienced in my first meeting in 1982 that I went to loaded 
I walked into my first meeting loaded, but yet there was a sense of homecoming that took place in my heart and in my psyche I had no words for. And the same thing happened 20 years later when I walked in there. And I shared in the meeting and I talked about, you know, I've got three kids. It's Christmas Day. They're not in my life. I don't know where one of them is. You know, I haven't seen him in, in a year or, uh, well, we'll have to see how long at that time. It'd been four months at that time. And uh, after the meeting, she came over and put her arms around me. She said, i got two grandkids coming over in a little while. You're welcome to come to my home. And if you need to hug some babies, you can hug mine. The therapeutic value of one addict helping another is without parallel. That's not maybe, if, could, would, or should. It is without parallel. So what did I do? I said thank you and I went back to the hotel room. (laughs) But I came back at 6 o'clock and I came back at 8 o'clock and I came back at 10 o'clock. Fortunately, in our group, we have four meetings a day. I saw two other people. One of them I owed a financial amends to, walked in. His eyes got a little big when he saw me. So I knew that he wouldn't talk to me. So one of his support group members, I got his phone number and I called him and I said, I'm back. And I've got to resolve this deal with you or I can't stay. And he didn't have a lot of good things to say. And that's okay. He's entitled to where he is. Just as I am entitled to do what I need to do to take care of me today. So we worked out an arrangement. You know, to take care of that deal. And that's what I'm still doing because it's a lot of money. Um, The woman that uh, stood up for me on the convention committee and... and, uh, got me to speak here. When I saw her, I pulled her off and took her in a room and I said, you know, I've got to clean up a mess with you. And what I did was, is I did what they taught me to do in the beginning. I started for the first time standing in my integrity. For the first time, I started truly getting honest, being open and willing to let the other person get their stuff off that I had harmed. And what started happening to me was a newfound freedom. See, I got freedom from the drugs when I got here. But that's not what Narcotics Anonymous is about. If you're a newcomer today, that's what it's about, and that's okay. You belong here, keep coming back. But the time comes when it ain't, it's no longer about the dope. It's about the disease. My disease is like the plunger on that syringe. I'm going to force whatever I can through that barrel to get what it is that I want from you until you give it to me or I leave. Every single relationship that I've ever had in Narcotics Anonymous was like that up until recently. It's a journey, not a destination. I'm 22 and a half years old for the second time. And I've had to hit a lot of walls in Narcotics Anonymous. And thank you for allowing me to do that. I can tell you without reservation that Narcotics Anonymous is the only place that has never asked me to leave. Never. I went to the other fellowship with six months clean, 
They asked me to leave. I'm serious. I was told in a new meeting on a Saturday morning by a senior member of that fellowship that I did not belong there. I needed to go back across town with my kind of people. I said, thank you. Bleep you. <laughs> and I'm out of here. <laughs> Fortunately, there was another member that met, you know, went out the door and grabbed me and said, you know, leave what you, you know, take what you want and leave the rest behind. You know, he's just an angry guy. He ain't got there yet. You know, and I came back and I did that for a little while. But once I got into Narcotics Anonymous at two and a half years clean, I'm a pure NA member. This is all I do. This is my home. I will not go anywhere else. I want you to know that the time will come when you will doubt that Narcotics Anonymous has anything else for you. I tell you that because it's happened to me. And I know you're like me because you would not be sitting in this room if you weren't. Trust me. Don't believe the addict in your head. Okay? Trust me. You can go from my experience. You do not have to do what I did. You don't have to go away. I'm going to tell you, I was a newcomer up until five years clean. Because after five years, I realized that I could do stuff without dope anymore. I could get through stuff. Then... That word family that we throw around here, then that stuff started coming up. And why I see a lot of people go out between five and ten years is because the core family issues are the things that don't get addressed enough. We don't talk about it enough in the meetings. And I don't know what you do with your sponsor. But I didn't get it from mine. And I'm not blaming. I'm not judging. I'm just sharing my experience. That word family invokes something in me. In the beginning, it was a family that said, if you can get through me, you can go use. So they prevented me from doing that. But after that, it came down to honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, integrity, and truth. And those were things that I did not have. And those are things that I'm getting today. <clears throat> I started going to three or four meetings a week. And the rage and the anger that I had about the lady that I'd lived with for four years that had taken all my stuff and my kid was overwhelming. And so a lot of days I laid in my bed at night with this plan, the Grandmaster plan. And the Grandmaster plan was to put on my camos and paint my face, get my big knife, you know, and go do what I know how to do or used to. But I kept coming back in the meetings, and I kept leaving it on the table. I kept telling the truth. I want to kill her today. I do. I ain't going to do it, but I want to do it. And up here, in the land of the loaves, i got a damn good plan to do that with. But I'm in this meeting, and I'm talking about it, and I'm going to leave it on the table so I don't. Fourteen months later, I was in my office, and the phone rang about one o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. And I answered the phone, and it was a voice that I knew very well. And she said, I'm very tired of hearing your son cry for you. And we're going to come back to Texas because he needs you. And that's called God doing for me what I could not do for myself. Because had I done what I wanted to do, 
I wouldn't be here today. But I put my selfish pursuit aside and I sat in those meetings and even when I didn't believe it, I said, I know God has a greater plan and I trust that it's going to be greater than I could ever script. And I'm going to keep coming back and talking about this until that plan manifests and presents itself in my life and I can stand in that glory. And it happened. I want to tell you a story. There's an African tribe. And in that tribe, when one tribal member murders another tribal member, they wait a year before there's any retribution that takes place to the one that's done the crime. On the anniversary date of the murder, they take that individual and the whole tribe lines the riverbank and they take him out to the river and they put him, submerge him in the water. And in that moment, the family of the deceased has a, a decision to make. To either swim out and rescue that person and live in grace and forgiveness or stand on the bank and live in isolation, degradation, anger, resentment, fear, self-loathing for the rest of their lives. So in that moment, the money, the property, the prestige, none of that mattered to me. And we came together on the phone that day for the higher good of my little boy. And I said, I don't care. I can make more money. I can get more stuff. I cannot hold my little boy in my arms if he is not present in my life. And today, we have a beautiful relationship on behalf of my son. Thank you, Narcotics Anonymous. That's why we have that. My girlfriend knows her. Her son has spent the night at her house with my son because they love each other and they play together. Okay? Miracles happen in Narcotics Anonymous. If I get my selfish pursuit, my ego and my false pride out of the way long enough to allow spiritual principles to come into the light, to allow God to work His beauty in my life, things change. Things get better. And we do recover. I got that experience and the wife that, that I had in Narcotics Anonymous that we have two children by, I haven't seen those kids in, in six years. But because I realized how God works in my life and the power of that, I made the decision to file papers and get my rights that I already have activated through the court system to get those two kids back in my life. And I'm going to tell you something. Standing and sitting in that courtroom for two and a half hours and having her attorney do my inventory before God and that judge was not the most comfortable process that I have ever been through. See, I told you that when I came back to Narcotics Anonymous, I had to atone. I made the decision to walk away from those kids because of my ego and my pride. <clears throat> and now it's necessary for me to walk back in their life. And it's not going to be an easy walk. Because when I left, they were seven and four. And now they're 13 and nine. And a lot of time has passed. And a lot of misinformation has been given to them because, God bless their mother, she's still living in the wound. You know? She doesn't go to, me she doesn't go to meetings. She doesn't have a sponsor. She doesn't work the steps. And she's living in her wound. And that wound is oozed out over those children. So there's a lot of stuff 
that I am going to have to atone for. But you know what? In the beginning, it scared me. I was scared to death to do it. That day I went in the courtroom, I shook, my inside shook. But when I sat down in that chair and that attorney started his stuff on me, I just said, take my will in my life, guide me in my recovery, show me how to live. And I got through that deal. They wanted to take my rights away. And the judge said, not in my courtroom. I don't even know that guy. But he said, this was the judge's words, that forgiveness is the order of the day. And this family needs to learn how to forgive so these children can be back in their dad's life. Now, I don't know if that guy's in recovery or not. And I guess because if he is and he's a judge, there's a conflict of interest, and I couldn't ask him to be my sponsor. (laughs) But that is a fantasy that I would entertain. But the fact is, is that, and now, you know, we're going into the second year of this, of this battle. But, but I've won, you know, God has prevailed in each one of these endeavors. Every time we've gone in and they've tried to chop me up and all this kind of stuff, you know, I've walked out with another piece of glory, you know, another piece of victory, a little bit more esteem, the benefit of practicing integrity, the benefit of it practicing honesty, being open-minded, and being willing to stand up for what I did. Those were the things that I learned in the beginning in Narcotics Anonymous, and along the way I forgot them. I thought that they applied to the drug use, and that as long as that I gave my drug log and was honest about that and, all, and was willing you know, not to use no matter what, that that equated to recovery. No. I don't necessarily know that I could stand here today and say honestly that it was relapsing behavior because what I know is, is that it is very necessary for me to go into my darkest of dark shadows in order to get freedom that this program has to offer me. Not only that, it's necessary for me to witness about that to you. Nikki said God knows and God does know. But God needs to know that I'm willing to stand up and say, I'm Stephen and I'm an addict and I did these things and God loves me anyway. And I know that's true today because I stand here before you. And I'm so blessed. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, let's thank Nikki and Stephen for speaking. Um, and at this time, I've asked Georgie to read We Do Recover. My name's George. I'm an addict. We do recover. When at the end of the road we find that we can no longer function as human beings, either with or without drugs, we all face the same dilemma. What is there left to do? There seems to be this alternative, either to go as best we can to the bitter end, jails, institutions, or death, 
or find a new way to live. In years gone by, very few addicts, addicts ever had this choice. Those who are addicted today are more fortunate. For the first time in man's entire history, a simple way has been proving itself in the lives of many addicts. <clears throat> it is available to us all. This is a spiritual, not a simple spiritual, not religious program known as Narcotics Anonymous. Okay. Um, at this time, if we could make a circle around the room and close the meeting with the third step prayer. Okay, let's do it.